the fast fashion that was appearing on the market and and the throwaway society that we were creating wasn't sitting well with me. So there's such a movement. There's so many people moving towards a sustainable way to shop and Preloved is one of those. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Meg Black, the founder of Robe and Crown, a beautifully curated collection of high-quality, pre-loved clothing that's among a growing number of businesses, offering fashion lovers an eco-friendly alternative. If you've ever spent a lazy day in Brunswick Heads, just north of Byron Bay in New South Wales, you may have found yourself scouting Meg's wares at the second-hand treasure trove known as Clem's Cargo. Her pieces are also stocked at Vend Marketplace in Brisbane, which is the city where she now lives with her beloved cat, Vinnie. Meg started her career as a jewellery designer, making bespoke pieces for well-known jewellers in Australia and New Zealand, before the company she worked for, for more than 18 years, decided to close down its bespoke offerings in 2017. With an opportunity for change suddenly on the cards, Meg decided to take the leap and follow her passion for style and sustainability. And she's now a proud advocate for the slow fashion movement to reduce our carbon footprint and be a little gentler to our planet. Here's my chat with Meg Black. So Meg, you've lived around half your life in New Zealand and half here in Australia. Can you tell me a bit about where you grew up? I grew up in a place called Whangarei, which is two hours north of Auckland, near the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. And it was pretty idyllic childhood, a great place to grow up, really. Gorgeous, near the beaches in any direction, four different ways. And, and we had a beach house at, um, about an hour from home. And we would spend every summer out there and we'd collect, I would collect shells and things like that. And I remember stringing them onto pieces of old broken necklaces and chain and things like that and turning them, sort of upcycling way back then, like turning them into jewellery from things that I had in my collection that were no longer working the way they were intended. Yeah. So you had that creative streak from a pretty young age, it seems. I guess so, yeah. My family... My mum's quite creative in the in the music and amateur theatre realm, so that was a big part of my life too, junior theatre and ah, that nice. sort of stuff, yeah. And what were you like at school? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I managed, but I didn't excel, that's for sure. I was a little bit of a creative dreamer, I guess, and, and more into the social aspect of school and the study. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I guess when you finished school, I was interested to hear that you spent your gap year working as a Jillaroo in Western Queensland. Yes. What was that experience like and what were you actually doing? Well, I guess I'd, I finished school and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I was still only 17. So my mum's cousin had a property in Australia because she was Australian, is Australian. And... Um, I went and worked on the on the property as a jillaroo, mastering cattle. Because I'd grown up with riding horses, I was I was fairly adept at riding. 
Um, but not. <laughs> it was quite a rude awakening when I got out there. <laughs> Luckily, the horse I had knew what it was doing. <laughs> oh, wow. So what was your day-to-day like? It was mustering cattle. It was a, a 16,000 hectare property with um, 1,600 head of of cattle. So we would muster for whatever reason, whether the cows had calved and the, the calves needed branding and culling and that sort of thing, or, wow. or yeah, moving the cattle around from paddock to paddock where the feed was. Mm. And it was great. It was it was kind of my grounding and for the future, really. Mm. It, it was my first independent away from home sort of living and, and a bit of a baptism and fire. <laughs> And what did you decide to study? I know you've, you've yeah. mentioned that part of that year was to think about what what to do. That's right. It was. It was. It was an opportunity to just kind of um, regroup and focus and think about where I wanted my future to be. And I knew that that was creative in some way. And my beautiful mum had put out some feelers while I was away. And there was a new course starting in um, the Polytech throughout New Zealand called Craft Design, which was a diploma two-year course where they offered all sorts of creative endeavours, including ceramics, hot glass, fabric and fibre, jewellery, photography. And we also did quite a lot of things, really. We did live drawing and, and what have you as well, humanities-type things. But also we made our way down to the metalworking and woodworking departments and did welding and and woodworking type um, projects as well. So it was it was quite comprehensive over the two years. Mm. Yeah. And did you think at that point what a career post-study was going to look like? Not really. I certainly, look, I chose to do fabric and fibre and jewellery in my second year. And they were the two things that appealed to me the most. But even at the end of that, I didn't feel I had enough experience and and knowledge in those areas to take them, you know, to go flying solo on my own doing something related to that. So um, I did a third year at Polytech, majoring in jewellery, and then there wasn't a Bachelor of Arts available in New Zealand at that time in gold and silversmithing, so I applied to Australia, both Canberra and Brisbane, and was accepted to both, but my mum's old stomping ground and where my dad went through university for vet science was Brisbane, so that's what I chose. Mm. Yeah, Right, so you decided that the jewellery design stream was going to be the way that you move forward. Mm. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of creative people that that dream about making a living out of jewellery design, but they might, you know, it might be seen as quite a tough way to make a living. Were you worried about that? And and how did you get your start in the industry? Um, When I finished my Bachelor of Arts, I still didn't feel like it was was a great um, introduction into art jewellery, but there was this huge gap between the commercial jewellery world and the art jewellery world. And... The art jewellery world seemed like the tougher way to make a living than the commercial jewellery world. So I went, I came back to New Zealand and did a commercial apprenticeship as well. So I studied for about nine years and, and I finished that apprenticeship with a very talented jeweller who started his own business during my final years of my apprenticeship. And it was just he and I making bespoke pieces to order in an exposed workshop situation where customers could watch their pieces being made basically yeah 
And then you ended up going on to have a very long and successful career as a jewellery designer, first in New Zealand and then in Australia. Mm. How did you come to be living and working in Brisbane? When I was working with Todd Barrel Master Jeweller in New Zealand, uh, sort of a crisis time in my life came where my relationship ended and my cat died and I decided to go and see the art that I'd studied at art school over in Europe and, and have a bit of a time out really. So I went and spent three months travelling around the UK and Europe and seeing all those beautiful paintings and sculptures and things that had had inspired me to be creative early on and after that time, I was too old at that stage, just I had missed out on getting a working visa in the UK. So I had booked to come home to New Zealand via Australia to catch up with my university friends. And I arrived in Brisbane and decided I wasn't quite ready to go back to New Zealand. <laughs> I quite like this Brisbane place. And um, so I applied for a job as a training manager at Michael Hill Toomble store in Brisbane. Right. And yeah, they took me on there. Wow. So, yeah, Michael Hill's a brand I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, which is probably a bit different to what you were doing back in New Zealand. So, what, yeah, what appealed to you about going into a big company like that? Well, I guess it was just a way of staying at that point. I didn't think I was going to be a very good store manager. Retail (laughs) wasn't my gig. And I ended up getting all the the tough customers who were just into talking about beautiful handmade jewellery sent my way in store and all the, the seasoned sellers kept on selling. So I was um, black starring every week and not making a very good job of it, just oh. um, having wonderful time chats with customers and potential bespoke pieces coming through. Yeah, I was interested to hear that Michael Hill did bespoke pieces. That wasn't something yes. that I knew about. So how did you end up going from being a store manager to then going back into your design side of yeah. the career? Well, there was a um, there was a few managers that came through the stores from time to time, including those some of those were from head office. And I got chatting to one who happened to be the um, manager of the manufacturing department, which was also based in Brisbane. So head office was Brisbane-based. And within it, they manufactured some of their own jewellery. So I got chatting to him one day and, and basically was headhunted up to head office to be the bespoke quote coordinator and liaison person for the stores across the country. And you ended up staying at Michael Hill for 18 years, yes. which is quite the stint. <laughs> yeah, it was. What was it? I mean, you must have really loved what you were doing to have stayed there for such a long period of your life. What What was it that you loved and, and how, how did that period unfold for you? Yeah, I guess um, when you're a Kiwi and Aussie, sometimes you get a little bit of a hard time. So working for a Kiwi company within Australia was kind of a an okay thing to do. It kind of validated your being here. Right. Um, as well as it being, it was a very established company in New Zealand, but it was kind of just finding its way here market share-wise. And it, so this role that where I was quoting bespoke work and special orders, which is special orders is just a change of a stock style from the stores. 
that was evolving and it was it was it turned into being handmade customer service coordinator and and within that we started to enter a few competitions as well because we were doing bespoke work and we won a competition, a coloured gemstone competition one year with my design that the workshop had produced, which oh. was pretty exciting. So the the team at head office saw it as as a growing area and so put a bit of energy into that that side of the business and I kind of grew with it. So the role evolved into product development as well, so designing new product for mass production as well as the growing side of bespoke coming from stores. As the as the store count grew, the bespoke inquiries grew. Right. Yeah. And so did, you must have worked your way up over that time. Did you end up in sort of a, a management position at I some point? I did. I ended up managing the handmake department. And, and during that time, the whole making of jewellery kind of changed within the commercial industry where CAD hit the scene as well. So um, computer-aided design became a huge part of jewellery manufacture. So bespoke started to kind of change a little bit where you had to sit down and forge metal from scratch into a finished item. Now you could draw it on a computer in a 3D form, render it like it was real and send that image to the customer and have that be approved before any precious metal or stones were worked with. So the the Michael Hill put me through training for CAD, which was amazing. So there was all these new techniques coming through that I was learning and growing with. But yes, I did end up managing personalities more than or or juggling that alongside designing and um designing was my favourite part. <laughs> managing people not so much. I hear. <laughs> <laughs> Fast forwarding then to 2017, Michael Hill announced they were closing the bespoke side of the business. Mm. Do you remember how you felt when you heard that news? I was quite surprised. It, it sort of came from nowhere, but I understood it because they wanted the store staff to focus on selling what they had. There was a lot of time and energy that went into bespoke work so yes they decided to cut it and I was shocked but I thought "Mm, that's sort of what got me up in the morning I don't necessarily want to focus wholly and solely on on product development so I guess I thought maybe it's time for a change and and the the amount of money that people were spending on perceived precious things was not starting starting not to sit with me so well I was kind of returning to my creative art jewelry sensibilities I guess so I said to my boss could you tell me what redundancy looks like for me and both of us kind of looked shocked at one another and (laughs) first time I'd verbalized it I guess it was it was in my head but um, yeah first time I'd, I'd said anything like that so he checked with me, he gave me a cooling off period and then <laughs> checked in with me the next morning and I said, yeah, let's ask the question. So yes, I had a bit of a safety net. Having worked there for so long, I got a full full redundancy. It was a voluntary redundancy. 
And so I left comfortably without burning any bridges and with a bit of a safety net. So that was, it couldn't have been better really. Mm. Well, I know around this time or maybe previous to that, you'd become very interested in pre-loved and secondhand clothes. It was something that you had a personal interest in for a long time. Mm. How did that interest come about? I think initially back when I was, 16, 17, like still at, well, 15, 16, still at school. I did a little bit of modeling. I've always been about 180 tall since then. And I had this, I did a little bit of modeling within that time. And, and I remember a modeling competition and I had nothing to wear. And so this created a panic in me where my sister had been earning. So she had this amazing wardrobe and I actually ended up pinching one of her brand new outfits out of her wardrobe and wearing it to this function that my mother warned me against taking it without her permission. <laughs> I got home and she had gone berserk and sent my father out to get a bolt and a padlock and padlocked her door, her wardrobe door shut <laughs> so I could no longer help myself to her clothing. And I think from there I always had this anxiety about not having the right thing to wear at the right occasion so I've always loved clothing and I've I've kind of stockpiled clothing but that's that's not always easy when you're not earning a lot of money so as a student I would op shop um buy from op shops and and buy funky things and it was a way of looking a little different to everyone else as well as as refreshing your wardrobe quite cheaply so in that time, I'd been buying secondhand for a while and people would ask me where I got what I was wearing and, and that sort of thing. And, and I'd, ha- I'd tell them it was all pre-loved and there was really no need to buy new. There were, yeah, for whatever reason, whether it be monetary and environmental reasons started to play a big part in, in my psyche as far as that was concerned. Just the fast fashion that was happening and the synthetic fibers that were flooding the market around the place was really just starting to insult my sensibilities. I couldn't, I couldn't handle the feel of synthetics after a while and the smell of them. Um, and I learned too that, that synthetic fibers shed microplastics all their life. So every time you put them in the washing machine, they're shedding those microplastics that end up in our waterways. And they're really damaging to the environment. Mm. So that was bubbling away in the background. Mm. You get the news that the bespoke business is closing. Yeah. What did you think that was going to mean for you? I'd been visiting a friend in northern New South Wales for a while and there was an area down there, a place down there called Clems Cargo, which I think you've alluded to in your intro. And I was following them. They had a great business, beautiful, sustainable old wares. So I'd bought from them before old printing trays and beautiful things. And I was following them on Instagram. And it it came up in my feed one day that they were condensing their business to a, to a part of the the shop and opening up the back section to be market type space where you could rent a space like a smaller space and not have to man it and a friend of mine the one I was visiting down there she also taught we she and I talked about it a bit and and I had a bit of a stockpile of clothing and I was thinking about an online business but then this this opportunity arose and I approached Juliana and Phil and and had a chat to them about 
putting my pre-loved clothing into Clem's cargo and we kind of went from there. I was one of the first ones in and um, at that time I kind of honed it down to wanting to do natural fibre only and a pretty minimalist sort of colour palette as well. Not a lot of pattern, just um, white through neutrals to blacks. And mm, Yeah, you have a very unique aesthetic. And so how long, did you allow yourself a bit of a break or did you end up leaping straight into the Clems Cargo opportunity? Look, I did have a bit of a break and a lot of that time was spent in northern New South Wales with my girlfriend and and her partner at their beautiful property. And yeah, that's when the Clems Cargo visit happened. Um, so it was all very slow and kind of evolved organically, which was, was kind of what, where I wanted my new life to be anyway. I was over the stress and anxiety that came with with the corporate world. I really wanted to live more mindfully, more slowly, and just take it all in. Mm. Yeah. And you have a strong purpose to your business, which I'm sure helps to really drive you and motivate you, and that's the sustainability aspect of the business. Mm. Why was that so important to you? Mm. It's huge, really. I guess I've always grown up with that ethos in my family without really realising it. My dad was um, very influential in that. He was a reuser and upcycler to the nth degree. One time he made my mother a cup of tea out of the boiled egg water and oh wow <laughs> just to save on water and that was just didn't go down well at all but he thought he'd try <laughs> Um, and yeah, I guess I'd always had, as I say, that fabric and influence and what have you. So a love of clothing. Um, but the, the, the fast fashion that was appearing on the market and, and the throwaway society that we were creating was, was another thing that wasn't sitting well with me. So I, I, I realized there was a, a group of people who wanted to shop pre-loved and second-hand clothing, but they didn't know quite how to go about it. They either didn't have the time, they didn't have the eye, or they just they just didn't have the inclination to trawl through an op shop looking for one beautiful piece of treasure in amongst a heap of mediocre. So by curating a collection and putting it in one place, and I guess I never ever put anything in there that doesn't that I wouldn't wear myself. Mm. So it's natural fiber and and a lovely neutral palette. So it seems to be working really well. It, it went down well um, at Brunswick Heads, and it's and it's still going strong down there. Mm. Um, and I guess just stepping back to some of the practical steps that you had to take to start your own business. I mean, it sounds like it did evolve quite organically, mm. making the connection at Clem's Cargo. But I was interested to hear that you also were able to get some government assistance to start a business, mm. which I hadn't heard before. Can you tell us a bit about how that worked? Sure. Well, I guess I was reading how to manage your redundancy and what to do and what not to do. I didn't want to blow all my money all at once. I wanted to have this relaxed little break and then move forward from there. So I thought I'd better pop into Centrelink and maybe just get a healthcare card to see if that could save me a little bit of money through this time until I'm working again. 
And when I popped in there, they suggested that I might be eligible for for new start allowance. And I said, oh, I don't want that because I'm looking to do my own business. And they said, oh, well, have you, is it a new business that you're starting and da-da-da. So we had this conversation and they brought up the fact that there was a program called NICE, which is the New Enterprise Incentive Scheme. And they support you basically for the first nine or ten months monetarily and they put you through pretty much a cert three in business, small business, micro business. So that's what I did, which was really exciting. I thought I'd done a business plan. I hadn't done a business plan. <laughs> I'd scratched the surface. Um, so pretty much that's that's where you start with your cert three in micro business is, is doing writing your business plan. And the research that that got me to do was just phenomenal. Mm. Um, opened my eyes to what this business could be and how it's, it's, there's such a movement. There's so many people moving towards a sustainable way to shop and Preloved is one of those, a mm. really strong player in that field. Mm. So that's been a pretty exciting couple of years for mm. you. Mm. <laughs> and then, and as I said, quite an organic journey. So it must be quite nice to be in a period of sort of discovery and things are working and perhaps not working sometimes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, can you talk a bit about what some of the challenges have been or some of the barriers that you had to overcome? One of the things I'm finding is this stock that doesn't move and what do you do with that stock? And mm. because I buy from charities and markets and things and sourcing all the time, it's quite a lovely thing. So I'm often buying at an op shop and giving to a charity in that way and then when something doesn't move, I will put that back to that charity or, or a different one, whatever that is. So that's kind of nice but there is that challenge of, of stock that's not moving and what to do with that. Um, some of the challenges, I guess finding spaces, because what I do sourcing-wise takes quite a lot of time, the marketplace that and space that happens at Clems was ideal. I don't have to man it. They man the shop. So I I was looking for another one of those, and there has been subsequently one open in Brisbane which is called Vend Marketplace at mm, um, the vendor's great yeah Sangaret Road Virginia and that's got about 80 traders under one roof and it's the same situation where you rent a small section and create a little shop for yourself but the staff there man it and process the transactions for you so all you all you nearly need to do is be there and keep the shop tidy and fresh and top it up stockwise and re-merchandise it from time to time I think the biggest challenge, and it's a growing challenge because there are so many more people shopping secondhand, is is finding stock. So I'm looking to potentially open up to having a buying day at one of my my locations at some oh, point. Okay. Yeah. What would that involve? It would involve people offering, putting out on social media that this is the day that I buy your pre-loved and people can come and, and bring things that they're no longer using and put them back into the circular clothing economy. I'm looking at a model around like giving them 25% of what I would sell it for or 50% right. store credit. Okay, yeah. that's great because I know you do spend a lot of time, you know, one of the things that sets you apart is 
not just the, your aesthetic and the natural fibre clothing but the quality of the garments mm. that you sell. Mm. And I know that there's a lot of time that goes into not just sourcing them but repairing and laundering. Yes. I mean, can you talk a bit about what a, even coming here today? I know you mentioned that you would check out a couple of the op shops while you were here. What, yeah. what does your process look like? I guess whenever I travel or if I have meetings like this, um, I, I investigate the area and see what's around so that the trip works for me on a number of levels. But yes, there's often beautiful clothing in beautiful fabrics that needs some tender love and care. It's been donated for whatever reason and sometimes that reason is it's, it's damaged. So I'll, I'll stitch and mend and, and rework in some ways. Often I've found things in fluoro colors that just <laughs> don't, don't work in my collections, but I'll eco dye them. So put a, um, an organic vegetable dye over the top. I'm investigating that and, and, um, looking to learn more in that area. And it can be easy to become a bit all-consumed by work, especially when you're so passionate about what you do. But I did want to ask how you maintain that balance and take care of yourself outside of the business. Mm. That's been a learning curve too, Jackie. This um, I was finding I was working seven days pretty much and each day was rolling into the next and Saturday and Sunday didn't mean a lot to me other than that there were clothing markets happening that I needed to go and source at. <laughs> And working and living by myself um, became a little bit isolated. So recently I've, I've reached out and joined a community garden. They meet regularly on a Wednesday morning. So Wednesday is now my day off. Okay. <laughs> I take myself to the garden and get my hands in the dirt and plant food and flowers and enjoy just that social connection as well. It's a really wonderful way. And also it kind of appealed to my ethos of recycling because it's my local um, composting hub so it lets me take all my my food scraps there and and recycle those as well yeah there's nothing better I think than getting out into nature whether it's the garden or the ocean or whatever it may be get grounded yeah You know, I think a lot of women, including those listening to a podcast like this, are looking outwards to see what other women are doing. Um, who are some of the women that you turn to and who inspire you? Mm. Well, I guess at the start of this journey, during that little period where I was having time out after Michael Hill but not quite sure where it was going, I went and saw Jane Melbourne speak and launch her book Slow Clothing in Brisbane and just hearing from her and the statistics on fast fashion and what it was doing to the environment and because she has an agricultural science background so she's got a very she comes at it from a very um scientific point of view and she just inspired me to look further i bought her book that day and i read it from cover to cover and there was so much in it about you know, treating, loving, loving what you wear and loving it for a long time, making it last and, and thinking about the environment, like getting dressed as an organic act, I think is what she says. So she's a huge inspiration for me. She's constantly agitating in this space and has been for a long time. And now recently just 
received the Churchill Fellowship to study a little bit more about it overseas and bring that back. So I look to her for for inspiration all the time. That's great. And I guess for those interested, we'll put a link in the show notes to Jane's book about slow fashion that, that you mentioned. Mm. What would you say has been the biggest lesson you've learned from the process of making such a big change? I think the biggest lesson is why did I wait so long? Be brave. But also, I mean, I, I was lucky. I had an opportunity to do it with a safety net that, that made a huge difference. I probably couldn't have without that. So potentially if I didn't have that, I would have started as a side hustle, I guess, and, and seen how it went and juggled it with my with my full-time work. Um, also, the retail business is fickle. It's up and down money-wise. So I'm learning to squirrel away in the good times and, um, yeah, not necessarily pour it all back into the business or buy something new for the house. <laughs> yes, and, and you, you mentioned feeling brave and I think that is, you know, feeling brave enough to make a change is a huge part of it. Mm. How did you find that courage to be brave and take the leap? Well, I was... I think with the with the Michael Hill scenario and the the loss of the bespoke, I was kind of forced to reassess my life and what I wanted out of it. I I just realised there was this this niche there, and I felt I could take it on. I felt I had what it took. I think everything that my life had been about before then led me there. It was it was like a culmination of all of the things I'd learned over. 45 years came together and it was kind of yeah it just made sense mm. just made sense it felt right I think if it feels right and and you're passionate about it and, and you're driven to do it then you really can't go wrong great thank you so much Meg for chatting with me today it's been a pleasure Jackie thank you that was Meg Black founder of Robe and Crown which you can find at robencrown.com.au and we'll include a link in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.